Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner here in the Surety Law Group at Wright Constable and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm joined today by my, by my partner, uh, Mr. George Backrack. As you know, the program is offered only to in-house claims professionals, and it's designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. We appreciate your support and ask that you um, pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in. We also ask that you like and or share our Surety Today posts on LinkedIn and Twitter. If you miss a presentation, you can listen to a recording at three different locations. Of course, uh, at our website, wcslaw.com, uh, as a podcast uh, at podbean.com under Surety Today, and at our microsite, suretytoday.net. You can also read a transcript of the presentation on the WCS website, or Surety Today microsite, and I say the word transcript, but it's really not a transcript. These papers are really uh, uh, like a paper you would get at the Northeast Conference or any of these surety conferences. They're organized and, and you know, written up with the citations, the footnotes, and, and they're really a good resource. It's not, it's not like a deposition transcript. It's, it's in a paper format, but we, we don't know what to call it, so we call it a transcript. It's really, it's really a paper. So if you have any um, suggestions for topics or improvements, please let us know. If you have any technical issues during the call, please contact Ms. Jeannie Hyatt by email at jhyatt, H-Y-A-T-T, at wcslaw.com. We've uh, muted the line during the presentation, as always, to avoid the background noise, and we will unmute the line at the end for any questions. Today we're concluding our two-part series on bankruptcy preferences, and our presentation will address the surety's indirect exposure for, for preferential transfers and potential liability to third parties. So I'll turn it over to George. Last month, Mike and I discussed the surety's receipt of direct preferential transfers from a principal, describing the situation as the very definition of going backwards. However, when a surety receives such a transfer from a principal in dubious financial condition, the surety should be aware that a preference situation may exist later if the principal files for bankruptcy, and the surety may have to give, up, give back the transferred property. This month, we will discuss when a surety can get blindsided and face exposure for what we will call indirect transfers because of the principal's transfers to known or unknown third parties that indirectly benefit the surety. An example is when the surety pays its subcontractors and suppliers, thereby relieving the surety of its payment bond obligations to those claimants, and then the principal files a bankruptcy case. There are two different ways that a surety may face this indirect exposure. First, the surety may sue the claimant for a preferential transfer. The claimant then may sue the surety under the payment bond, either within the, tr the trustee's preference case or after the preference case is resolved through a claimant settlement with a trustee or the trustee gets a judgment against the claimant. Second, in what is a true indirect preference action, the trustee may bypass a preference claim against the claimant and sue the surety directly under the theory that the surety is the true beneficiary of the principal's pre-petition payment to the claimant because the surety would otherwise have had liability to the claimant under the payment bond. We will start today with a quick overview of the substantive elements of a preference and the defenses to a preference, and then proceed to discuss the surety's indirect exposure. Section 
Today I will only highlight the elements of the preferential transfer as we discussed this last month. The trustee may avoid any transfer and in interest of the debtor and property to, the to or for the benefit of a creditor. The principal's pre-petition payments to his subcontractors and suppliers on a bonded project may be such a transfer of property to or for the benefit of a creditor. The surety is also a creditor of the principal under the indemnity agreement and the bonds. The concept that the principal's transfer or payment to a third-party subcontractor or supplier may be a benefit to the surety as a creditor of the principal is the major takeaway from today's presentation. The surety's trans the principal's transfer of property must be for or on account of an antecedent debt owed by the debtor to the creditor before the transfer is made, whether it is a payment to a sub or a supplier or the reimbursement of the surety under the indemnity agreement as a result of the execution of bonds. The transfer must occur while the debtor was insolvent. The debtor is presumed to be insolvent when it files its bankruptcy case. The most frequent period of time that a principal's transfer of property may be avoidable is on or within 90 days before the filing of the bankruptcy case. Finally, the last element requires that the creditor receive more than it would have received if the bankruptcy case had been a liquidation under Chapter 7. Now, as Mike discussed in, November, in the November presentation, there are a number of procedural and proof issues that are important to remember as we go through this material. The debtor's or creditor's intent or motive for the transfer of the property is not material. It is the effect of the transfer that controls. A preferential transfer is avoidable, not automatically void, and the trustee must file a complaint to avoid the transfer. There's a two-year statute of limitations for the trustee's filing of a complaint for a preferential transfer, and it may be longer if a trustee is appointed during the second year. And finally, the trustee has the burden of proving that the transfer is avoidable by proving every element of a preference by a preponderance of the evidence. The defendant or creditor has the burden of proving any defenses by also a preponderance of the evidence. Mike? Okay. <clears throat> Thanks, George. So I'm going to review quickly the, uh, the defenses to preference avoidance uh, actions under the code, uh, and we, we, we touched on this or talked about this last month, but there are seven uh, statutory defenses to a preference avoidance action that are set forth in the code. As I discussed last month, the, uh, the three that are the most valuable to a surety are, are the following. The first is uh, Section 547C1, the contemporaneous exchange for new value. The code states that there is no preference to the extent a payment was intended by the debtor and creditor to be a contemporaneous exchange for new value given to the debtor. So if the principal pays the premium and at the same time the surety issues the bond, the payment of the premium would not be a preference because the bond is the new value issued in exchange. Another example would be where the debtor pays COD in exchange for a shipment of materials to a project. The new value defense is grounded in the principle that the transfer of new value to the debtor will offset the payment made by the debtor and therefore the debtor's estate will not be depleted to the detriment of other creditors. And so that's why there's no preference. So second, uh, look at, we'll look at the ordinary course of business defense under Section 547C2. The code provides that there is no preference if the debt that was paid by the debtor 
was incurred by the debtor in the ordinary course of business of both the debtor and the creditor, and the payment was made in the ordinary course of the business of both the credit, the creditor and debtor, or the payment was made according to ordinary business terms. The ordinary course defense is intended to protect recurring customary transactions that are made and paid in the ordinary course of business. To establish this defense, the initial question will be, was the debt incurred in a typical arm's-length commercial transaction that occurred in the marketplace as part of a routine operation? Once it is established that the debt was incurred in the ordinary course, then it must be proven that either the payment was made in the ordinary course of both the debtor and the creditor or it was made according to ordinary business terms. The last defense uh, I'll look at here briefly is Section 547C4, Subsequent New Value. So under the code, there's, there is no preference if the creditor gives new value to the debtor on an unsecured basis after receiving a preferential transfer. So in other words, even though a creditor has received a preference payment, the creditor may still offset any subsequent unsecured credit it may have extended to the debtor after receiving the payment. The subsequent new value exception was devised as a solution for the unsecured creditor with a running account who would otherwise find the last 90 days of payment avoided by the trustee in bankruptcy. The primary purpose of this defense is to encourage creditors to continue their credit arrangements with financially distressed debtors, potentially helping them avoid bankruptcy. Of course, other defenses are related to the elements of a preference, and the, and the trustee's got to prove all of those, and if they don't, then, uh, then you can assert those as defenses. So let's look at, um, at, at letters of credit. And, and how that may become a preference. So we always, we always talk about the fact that letters of credit are not property of the bankruptcy estate, and you can draw down on the letter of credit after the bankruptcy has been filed, and you can pay with the proceeds uh, claims that are made, and that's all not part of the bankruptcy estate and not a preference. But the issuance of a letter of credit can be a preference if you, you're in a situation where you've gotten a letter of credit midway through the process. So you got your bonds issued, and then sometime later you decide, well, I better get a letter of credit here because the debtor is not looking too healthy, whatever. And you get that letter of credit issued, and then in order to get it issued, the debtor has to post collateral. And so that's sort of a transfer there. The pledge of the collateral to the issuing bank for the letter of credit becomes a transfer, and it's for an antecedent debt because these bonds were issued beforehand. And so now you've got a situation where if, if the bankruptcy is filed within 90 days of the issuance of that letter of credit, the court may set that aside and find a preferential transfer. And the court basically will look and say, okay, the surety was unsecured. It got the letter of credit and now is paid in full. And so it basically will set aside that and look, look to the indirect benefit that the surety has received. And so in that circumstance, the, uh, the, surety, the letter of credit can be deemed a preference. George? The issue, next issue is when can the surety be liable to a third party who must disgorge a preference? The surety may be indirectly liable to a trustee as a result of a subcontractor supplier receiving a payment from the principal, uh, and then a claim is made for this preference. Uh, the claimant then may be looking to the payment bond. This could occur under two circumstances. The surety may be sued by the trustee and end up disgorging the money at some point and then bringing its action against the surety under the payment bond, or the claimant, upon being sued for a preference, may bring the surety in immediately with a third-party claim 
and say that if I'm liable to disgorge these funds, the surety is liable to reimburse me. The first question is whether the alleged preferential transfer involves property of the bankruptcy estate. Uh, that question ties into the form, manner, or method of the transfer, namely how was the payment of money made by the principal to the claimant. Of course, the claimant and the surety have all of the defenses to a preference avoidant action, which as Mike has already discussed. Mike will now discuss that form, manner, or method of transfer. Mike? Okay, thanks, George. Um, so obviously, claimants can be paid in a variety of ways, and when that payment is made within the 90 days of the bankruptcy filing by an insolvent principal, the question arises as to whether the form of payment uh, could give rise to a preference action. So let's look at two forms of payment that are fairly common. The first will be joint checks. So joint checks, um, you know, is a common method of payment to subcontractors and suppliers issued by an obligee payable to both the principal and the claimant. Numerous courts have held that payment by joint check uh, does not give rise to a preference action. The reasoning of the courts generally is that the debtor is a mere conduit with respect to the joint check and has no control over the funds except to endorse the check to the joint payee for whom the funds have been designated. As a result, the debtor has no legal or equitable interest in the funds and they are not property of the estate. As we have noted uh, before, a, in order for there to be a preference action, the funds uh, have to be property of the estate. So George and I, uh, that's the general rule is that joint checks are not property of the estate, but George and I had a bankruptcy matter uh, for a surety in North Carolina and ran into the minority view on the joint checks. And this was in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of North Carolina, the very court where our case was pending. And, and that, that court had previously held in a case called Code Electric versus Crampton that a joint check constituted property of the estate and was subject to preference law. In that case, the debtor was the general and the owner uh, and the, had issued joint checks to the debtor and to subcontractors. Within 90 days of bankruptcy, uh, the payment was made and, and the trustee subsequently sought to avoid that payment. The subcontractor argued that, that the payment was not a preference because it was a joint check and the majority view holds that it's not property of the estate. The Code Electric Court stated that the owner was not under any contractual obligation to pay the sub directly and that the sole contractual payment obligation was to the debtor alone. The court held that the fact that the check was issued jointly simply assured the owner and the sub that the sub would be paid and that the, there wouldn't be a lien on the property. So according to the court, the joint check was, was property interest of the debtor when the debtor endorsed it over to the sub and therefore was, it was, was a preference. So just be aware that there can be a minority view out there. Uh, one other point to note about joint checks and preferences is to check the date on when the joint check agreement is entered into. Uh, Connecticut Bankruptcy Court has held that the entering into a joint check agreement within 90 days of bankruptcy can itself be a preferential transfer of the debtor's interest in property, rendering the joint check agreement a nullity. So let's look at a second method of payment, and that's through escrow funds or control accounts. So uh, another common method of payment uh, to claimants is through the escrow uh, or funds control account that's set up by the surety uh, pursuant to funds control or financing. Can such payments be deemed a preference? Payments from such accounts are typically covered by the earmarking doctrine. The earmarking doctrine is a judici judicially created equitable exception to the preference provisions of Section 547. If the transferred funds were made available to the debtor for the sole express purpose of paying the debtor's obligation 
to a specific creditor, then the debtor never has control of the funds. Further, the payment is not a preference because the money was never subject to an equitable interest of the debtor and cannot be considered to be property of the estate under Section 541 of the Code. So the earmarking doctrine is premised on the fact that the funds provided to the debtor to pay the specific indebtedness are not recoverable as a preference because the funds were never property of the debtor, and therefore the transfer does not disadvantage any creditors. But for the earmarking doctrine to apply, the debtor cannot have any control or authority over the disposition of the funds. And, of course, it's got to be noted that's a judicially created uh, doctrine, so therefore it has to be narrowly construed. George? Let's say that the claimant, either through a settlement with the trustee or loses on a judgment, loses the preference avoidance action, disgorges the payment back to the trustee, and then seeks recovery from the surety under the payment bond. There are a number of issues that are involved. Initially, upon a principal's payment to its bonded project subs and suppliers, a surety is discharged from the obligation to pay those same entities under the payment bond. The principal subs and suppliers are not entitled to be paid twice. But what happens if the principal's trustee in bankruptcy requires those subcontracts and suppliers to disgorge the principal's pre-petition payments as preferences? Those subs and suppliers are now effectively unpaid. Can they now become claimants against the surety's payment bond, notwithstanding the prior discharge of the surety due due to the principal's pre-petition payments? Namely, can their claims be revived? Section 70 of the Restatement of Suretyship and its comments provides support for the revival of the claimant's claims against the surety and the payment bond under these circumstances. When the claimants must return a pre-petition payment to a trustee as a preference, the claimants are now unpaid. Part of the theory is that the claimants would not accept the payments from the principal, especially if the principal is in financial distress, and would look first to the surety for payment instead. That situation could require the surety to be involved in every payment made by a principal who may be in financial trouble. None of us in the surety industry want this to happen. The surety would prefer that the principal pay the claimants, and then we take our chances that the surety will be discharged from any further obligations to pay those claimants. There are a number of cases that support the revival of the the claimants' claims against the surety's payment bond, and they are cited in the presentation paper. The surety may have defenses to the claimants' revived claims, and Mike will address those defenses next. Okay. Thanks, George. So, so the claim has just been forced to disgorge a payment that it received over two years ago, and it is now knocking on the surety's door looking to get paid under the payment bond. There are a number of possible defenses to consider, such as lack of timely notice, uh, the release, or statute of limitations. So let's look at the notice defense first. The payment bond language and or the terms of the applicable statute generally require that a claimant provide notice uh, of its claim to the surety, identifying such inf- information as, you know, who they worked for, the project, dates, and how much is owed. There are numerous cases holding that the failure to give timely and proper notice is a bar to a payment bond claim. But in this scenario, the claimant was paid all those years ago, and at that time there was no need for the claimant to provide notice of its claim. The claim was, in fact, paid. Can lack of notice be argued as a defense in this situation? There are tolling provisions in the bankruptcy code under Section 108, but those only operate where the automatic stay precludes a party from exercising their rights. However, the automatic stay generally does not preclude a third party from pursuing a claim 
under the debtor's payment bond. Therefore, the notice and limitations periods for asserting payment bond claims generally will not be told by the principal's bankruptcy filing. In St. Paul Fire Marine Insurance Company versus Century Asphalt Materials out of the Southern District of Texas, the payment was made to the subcontractor by the, by the principal and was set aside as a violation of 549 of the Bankruptcy Code, unauthorized post-petition transfer. That's a cousin of the uh, preference uh, section. The subcontractor then filed suit against the surety, and the surety moved for summary judgment contending that the subcontractor's claim was barred by failing to provide timely notice. The bankruptcy court, invoking equitable estoppel, held that the failure to provide the notice was not a defense, and it permitted the claimant to pursue its claim against the bond. However, the United States District Court, on appeal, for, uh, reversed the holding and held that equitable estoppel was inapplicable because the notice requirement for a claim on the bond was a substantive condition precedent to maintaining a claim on a payment bond, and the failure to provide the notice barred the claim. So, you know, consider that option as, as asserting notice if, you're, if you find yourself in that situation. The next defense to look at is, uh, is release. So if the course, you know, in the course of dealing uh, and receiving, making payments, claimants typically execute a release of all of their claims, usually known and unknown, including claims against the surety and bonds. Subsequently, the claimant is forced to disgorge a payment as a preference. Can the surety use a release as a defense to the claim against the payment bond? In Kimball Construction Company versus XL Specialty Insurance Company out of the District of Maryland, the principal entered into subcontracts on three projects with a subcontractor. The principal made payments to the sub on the jobs in the spring of 2014 and then filed Chapter 7 bankruptcy in July of 2014. In December 2014, the surety made payments under its payment bonds on the three projects to the subcontractor. As part of the payment process, the surety obtained releases from the sub now, a year later, the trustee asserted a preference action against the sub for the payments that the principal had made. The subcontractor then sued the surety, claiming the surety would be liable for any amounts that it may be compelled to pay the trustee, claiming unjust enrichment. The surety filed a motion for summary judgment, arguing that the releases precluded any subsequent claims under the bonds. The court held that the language in the releases was unambiguous and that there was no mutual mistake. The court noted the fact that the bankruptcy action was filed prior to the execution of the releases and believed that the subcontractor could have contemplated the possibility of future preference actions. The court held that the surety would not be liable for claims related to the preference payments because of the, re because of the release. The court granted the surety summary judgment motion. <clears throat> Similarly, in in-ray contractor tech uh, out of the Southern District of Texas, the principal filed bankruptcy before completing the project and the surety took over. The surety entered into a ratification agreement with the subcontractor and paid the full amount owed under that agreement. The ratification agreement provided that when the surety paid the full amount, the sub fully and forever released and discharged the surety from any and all claims, suits, and actions arising against the payment bond for all labor and materials furnished to date. The trustee subsequently asserted an avoidance action regarding the payments made by the principal to the sub, and the sub was forced to, to disgorge those payments. The court held that the release executed by the sub barred its claims against the surety. The court stated that the claimant had knowledge of the bankruptcy, could have anticipated potential preference actions when it, when it uh, executed the releases, and thus the court held there was no mutual mistake or failure of consideration. Reliance on a release uh, is a fact-intensive defense, and factors uh, have to be considered if you're going to assert that defense. Finally, the statute of limitations. Frankly, we didn't find any cases on this. 
I mean, it makes sense that you could assert this as a defense. There are some some uh, arguments to the contrary, but uh, we, we haven't found any authority on this point yet. George. So now we're in a situation where the trustee, instead of filing a claim against the claimant, uh, files a claim directly against the surety. The trustee may bypass a preference claim against the claimant and sue the surety directly under the theory that the surety is the true beneficiary of the principal's pre-petition payment to the claimant because the surety would otherwise have had liability to the claimant under the payment bond. Even though the surety has not received any direct payments or transfers from the principal, the surety may be liable for a preference based upon the principal's pre-petition payment to the claimant. The case law under Section 547 has established that a payment by the debtor of a guaranteed obligation is a payment that is to or for the benefit of the guarantor creditor. A surety issues bonds for the principal with reimbursement rights against the principal in the event of losses under the bonds and is therefore a creditor of the principal. When the principal makes a pre-petition payment to a claimant, thereby releasing and discharging the surety from paying that obligation under the payment bond, the surety is receiving a benefit as a creditor of the principal under Section 547. Absent of defense, the surety may be liable for the preference even though it never received the actual transfer of the property from the principal. The surety may raise all the defenses that the claimant could have raised to the preference claim, including the failure of the trustee to prove each element of a preference, such as property of the estate. A primary defense is that it's not property of the estate, and Mike has discussed that. The surety also has the claimant's affirmative defenses under Section 547C, such as contemporaneous exchange for new value, ordinary course of business payment, or the claimants providing additional new value. Furthermore, and this is where it gets a little difficult, the surety has its own Section 547C defenses based upon the surety's equitable lien rights or subrogation rights in the bonded contract funds. Specifically, a surety has subrogation rights to the bonded contract funds in the event that a principal fails to pay the claimants on a bonded project. The surety's argument is that if the principal pays its subcontract and supplier claimants, the surety's subrogation rights in the bonded contract funds are released and the principal may be entitled to the payment of the bonded contract funds. Cases have held that the principal's payment to the claimants releases the surety's subrogation rights to the bonded contract funds, which constitutes a contemporaneous exchange for new value to the principal and is a surety's preference defense under Section 547C1. It is not easy just contending that because there are bonded contract funds that are no longer subject to the surety's subrogation rights, the principal's payments to its substance suppliers lets the surety off the preference hook. The cases seem to divide along a number of lines. Regardless of the amount of the principal's pre-petition payments to its substance suppliers, if there are bonded contract funds available in any amount, the release of the surety subrogation rights to those bonded contract funds may be enough for the contemporaneous exchange for new value defense. However, if the principal eventually receives the bonded contract funds because it has paid the claimants, that receipt may not be contemporaneous with the principal's payments to its subs and suppliers, 
and the surety's release of its subrogation rights may not be deemed to be a contemporaneous exchange for new value. Finally, there may be a relationship between the amount of the principal's pre-petition payments to its subs and suppliers versus the amount of the bonded contract funds subject to the surety's subrogation rights. Courts differ on this issue. Some courts hold that there is no valuation requirement in Section 547 requiring the calculation of the bonded contract funds available and released compared to the principal's pre-petition payments. Some courts hold that the release of the surety's lien and subrogation rights in the bonded contract funds alone is new value, and some courts require an analysis, calculation, and measurement of the amount of the new value the surety gives to the principal, namely the amount of the bonded contract funds released from the surety's subrogation rights, and whether it is equal to or greater than the principal's alleged pre-petition preferential transfers. In summary, these are tough cases for a surety that revolve around the facts of the case. While there is authority that any release of the surety subrogation rights in the bonded contract funds is a complete defense to the surety, there is also substantial authority that the surety's defense to the preference action will be limited to the actual value of the subrogation rights that the surety releases in the bonded contract funds. So what Mike and I would like to do now is to quickly summarize what we have covered in our two presentations in November and today concerning preferences and what a surety may do to avoid preference liability. When the surety receives a direct transfer from the principal, the surety should seek the payment um, or collateral up front as a contemporaneous exchange for new value at the time that the surety executes the bonds for the principal. This is not always possible. The principal's transfer to the surety may well achieve all of the elements of a preference. A transfer of the debtor's property uh, to, the, to the surety when the, for an antecedent debt with the surety as a creditor. Uh, whether this occurs as a result of a demand for collateral or in some other way, the transfer may be avoidable. Regardless, the old adage is accurate, take the payment or the transfer and hope for the 90 days to pass. The only thing that the surety may lose is the collateral. Indirect preferences that result in the benefit to the surety are more difficult because the surety has no control over the facts, what occurs and when. What appears to be and may actually be an ordinary course of business payment may result in the surety's exposure to liability. Uh, and that's a difficult situation. Believe it or not, there's one way that the surety can protect itself in bankruptcy, and that's a four-letter word. It's called financing the principal. Uh, we don't really have the time to go into that, but if you run into that situation where financing and bankruptcy may be an option, then you need to talk to us about how you can protect yourself with potential preferences. You can keep the bonds in place, too. Yeah. You can get some, you can get some uh, value out of that from trustees. Okay, so uh, before I open up the line for any questions, I wanted to remind everyone that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, January 14, 2019 at 12.30. We will be joined by our special guest, Jay Cabello. He's the division manager with Vertex Companies from Irving, Texas. And we'll be discussing key factors in closing out a project. Upcoming events in the surety industry, the uh, ABA FSLC me midwinter meeting will be held on January 16th through the 19th in uh, San Diego, California. 
Uh, Wright Constable is a co-sponsor of a dinner on Wednesday night, so if anybody wants an invite to that, just let me know. The Philadelphia Surety Claim Association lunch meeting will be held on January 23rd. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we want to wish everyone a safe and happy holiday season and a happy new year, and we look forward to speaking with you again next year. So let me open up the line. <clears throat> okay, so if we have any questions, let's raise them now. Hello, anybody? All right, well, thank you again for calling in, and again, happy holidays. Thank you. And to you as well. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.